Genesis chapter 44. Uh, we're back to the story of Joseph. And because I was a bit ill last week, we're having to gallop a little. So we're actually today thinking about chapters 43 through to halfway through 45. So let me just say by way of introduction, in terms of the story, uh, we're in the situation where Joseph is now uh, the right-hand man of, the, of Pharaoh. Uh, and all of Egypt is under his command. There have been seven years of plenty, and Joseph has filled the barns with grain. His brothers have been once to visit him, but didn't realise who he was, and he didn't tell them. And he kept Simeon, one of the, the 12 brothers, as a kind of prisoner, and sent the brothers back home to Israel, and said, I want you back here, but this time, or next time, I want you back here with Benjamin. Uh, but chapter 43 tells us that they, they waited a long time. They didn't just go back and get Benjamin. They went home, and it wasn't until the famine got more severe that eventually they headed back up to Egypt. So as chapter 44 begins, we're on the brothers' second visit to Egypt, uh, and they're fearful. The first time uh, they went home, they found that the money they'd brought to pay for the grain was back in their sacks. So they're worried that they're going to get uh, arrested as thieves, they're worried about the reception they'll receive. Uh, this time, uh, it is 10 brothers who go. Simeon's in prison still in Egypt. Joseph is in Egypt. But this time, Benjamin, Joseph's full brother, is with them. So as chapter 44 begins, the brothers uh, have arrived. They've been brought into Joseph's house, sat down, and have feasted with him. And still they don't know who he is. So chapter 44 then Joseph commanded the steward of his house, fill the men's sacks with food as much as they can carry and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. As soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. They'd only gone a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his steward, up, follow after the men. And when you overtake them, say to them, why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks and by this that he practices divination? You've done evil in doing this. When he overtook them, he spoke to them these words. They said to him, why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money we found in the mouths of our sacks, we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die, and we also will be my Lord's servants. He said, let it be as you say, he who is found with it shall be my servant, and the rest of you shall be innocent. Then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack, and he searched, beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey and they returned to the city. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him to the ground. Joseph said to them, what deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? And Judah said, what shall we say, my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also, in whose hand the cup has been found. But he said, far be it from me that I should do so. 
Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. Then Judah went up to him and said, Oh, my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears. And let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a young brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, Bring him down to me, that I may set my eyes on him. We said to my Lord, The boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. Then you said to your servants, Unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And our father said, go again, buy us a little food. We said, we cannot go down. If our youngest brother goes with us, then we will go down. For we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me. And I said, surely he has been torn to pieces and I've never seen him since. If you take this one also from me and harm happens to him, you'll bring down my grey hairs to evil, sorry, in evil to Sheol. Now, therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the grey hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father." Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out for him. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed in his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And do not now be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither ploughing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh the Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. What do you think when you sing a psalm like Psalm 90? A few of us are used to singing psalms. I'm not quite sure why, but it's just not been massively in the tradition, at least if you've grown up in churches in England or have been used to going to churches in England. It seems a strange song to sing, doesn't it? 
uh, we were used to singing, in Christ alone my hope is found, and singing about the joys of salvation. We're used to singing songs like our, our opening hymn, O Lord my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all the works your hand hath made. Well, then I sing in praise to you. But I wonder if you found Psalm 90 a bit dreary. Perhaps you're not used to coming to church. You, you wouldn't call yourself a Christian. And you wonder why a group of people would gather on a Sunday morning and sing words like this. Into death's sleep, you sweep us all away. We're like the grass at break of day. It dries perishes before the night. Our years amount to 70 in length, even 80 if we have the strength, and yet our days in grief and pain are past. They quickly end and away they fly at last. Psalm 90 is a really a very long reminder of our mortality. All of us here, whether we profess the faith or not, all of us know that we are heading towards death. Have you ever thought what's going to happen the second after you close your eyes for the last time? Have you ever thought what's going to happen the moment after you take your last breath? If you're a Christian, have you ever actually thought about what it'd be like when you open your eyes and Christ is there on the throne? Oh, we sing the right things. In Christ alone, my hope is found. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. But what is your hope? How confident are you of your welcome there, your reception there? I think probably one of the most common battles for Christians is the fear that actually my welcome isn't secure. I know the right words to say, I believe Jesus died for my sins, but has it really worked? Am I really safe? Will I really be welcomed? The story of Joseph, and particularly this part of it, I think helps us uh, with those fears. It tells us of a group of brothers heading to face God's appointed ruler. You remember the brothers are the lowest of the low. Uh, They have done terrible, terrible things. Uh, And yet in these three chapters, 43 through 45, uh, we see the, the wonderful work of God in their lives to give them hope and ultimately the welcome they receive. We're going to have to go fairly quick because we're covering a lot of, a lot of ground this morning. I want to see, if you like, or, or hang our thoughts really, on the three persons of the Trinity, uh, children, can someone help me out here? We know there's only one God, but one God in three persons. Who are the three persons? Okay, you're only allowed to give me one. Okay, Isaac? The Holy Spirit. Abs. And finally, who's the son? Brilliant. Three sent children, three answers. Well done. Father, son, and spirit. And we'll see how behind the scenes all three have been at work in this great salvation plan. So first of all, let's think about uh, the great transformation. Okay, the great transformation in the brothers. Ultimately, it's the Holy Spirit who transforms us. And we've seen a wonderful transformation in these 10 men. Uh, In chapter 43, if you just turn back there, when they first head back for the second time to Jerusalem, not to Jerusalem, sorry, to Joseph uh, and to Egypt, uh, they're scared, they're scared because last time when they went home, the money was in their sacks. And so they're worried they're going to get arrested and put into prison. But in verses 16 through uh, 25, that the steward, Joseph's chief of staff, as it were, reassures them. 
Uh, Verse 23, peace to you, don't be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. And then he brings Simeon out to them. Things are starting to look a little bit up for the brothers. But then something strange happens. Uh, They're brought into Joseph's household. Even that's a bit odd. You go to buy grain. Well, why not just buy it from one of the servants? Why is the chief man of all Egypt bringing you into his household? But they are brought in. And they're sat, if you look at verse 33, in Joseph's household at a feast in order of their birth, oldest through to youngest. Now, remember, they don't know that Joseph is their brother. They don't know who this great ruler is. Imagine how scary that is. How does this guy know us, that he can see us all in order? Reuben, eldest, Simeon, Levi, and on down the brothers till Benjamin at the bottom. What's going on? Uh, the question that's going to be echoing around in the brother's mind is the question uh, that, jo- that Jacob, their father, poses back in verse 14 of chapter 43. Eventually, he lets them go back with Benjamin. He's begrudging to let Benjamin, who's now his favourite son, the true brother of Joseph, the son of his favourite wife, Rachel, he begrudges the thought of letting Benjamin out of his sight. But eventually, he agrees he has to. And verse 14, may God Almighty grant you mercy before the man. Are you going to receive mercy? That's what the brothers are thinking. Are we going to receive mercy? The question is heightened all the more for us, the readers. Will they receive mercy? Because we know it's the one they enslaved and sold into Egypt, whose court they're going to enter. They don't know that. They're worried just because the money that came back in their sacks. We ought to be worried all the more for them. Are they going to receive mercy? Uh, what Joseph does here is test them. Okay? He's trying to find out what has become of these men. There's really no other explanation of all this business with the cup, the back and forward uh, with the cup. Uh, he tests them in three ways. In fact, the narrator sets it up in three ways. The caravan, the catering, and the cup. Uh, the caravan gives us a clue that this is going to be a test. If you look back at, at verse 11 uh, of chapter 43... When their father, Israel, sends them down, Jacob sends them down. If it must be so, he says, do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags and carry a present down to the man. A little balm, a little honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio nuts and almonds. I need to read over that and think, hey, that's nice, giving Pharaoh and his servant a gift. But there's a reason those things are listed. Okay, this, this caravan is about to go down. The brothers to Egypt carrying, well, carrying... carrying the same things that the caravan that took Joseph down to Egypt is carrying. Back in chapter 37 and uh, verse 25, when the Ishmaelites took Joseph into slavery, what were they carrying? Gum, balm, and myrrh down to Egypt. So you see that the situation is the same. Both times there's this traveling group going down to Egypt with Jacob's favorite son, the son of Rachel, carrying gum, balm, and myrrh. The, 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 the narrator is setting us up to see, will the brothers do it again? Remember, they hated Joseph, the other ten, because he was the favourite son. Now, Benjamin is the favourite. Do they hate him still? Have they changed? Has there been a transformation? And Joseph carries on this, this testing. First of all, with the catering. Verse 34 of chapter 43, at this feast, they're all sat in order. 
But in verse 34, portions were taken to them from Joseph's table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs. How are they going to react? This catering test, you know? He's being lavished with all the good food, five times as much. When Joseph was given the special coat, special treatment, they resented it and they hated him. What do they do this time? They drank and they were merry. The jealousy, the envy is gone. But Joseph pushes it further. And this is chapter 44, where we'll spend most of our time today. He sets this test up with a cup. Uh, He tells his steward to put his cup, his silver cup, in Benjamin's sack. Then he sends all the brothers home and then sends the steward galloping after them to, to arrest them en route and say, someone has stolen my cup. He wants to see how the brothers are going to react. Are they going to throw Benjamin under the bus, just like they did with Joseph all those years ago? So the slave catches up with them. Uh, the servant of Joseph catches up and accuses them of stealing the cup. And what do they say? Well, they protest their innocence, first of all. And verse 9, they say, Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die, and we also will be our Lord's servants. They're so sure they're innocent, they say, If you find the cup, whoever stole it dies, and we'll all be your slaves. Now, that's too much for the servant. Okay, because the servant knows Joseph's plan. He wants them to be in exactly the same situation as Joseph. Remember, Joseph, uh, they sold to slavery. They don't, he doesn't want them to be killed and all of them enslaved. He wants to give them the opportunity to throw Benjamin under the bus. So, so the servant in verse 10 says, let it be as you say, he who is found with it shall be my servant and the rest of you shall be innocent. That's not at all what they said. They said, kill whoever did the bad, stole it and everyone will be slaves. But he downgrades it to make it the same as Joseph. No, no, this is your chance to throw Benjamin into jail. Uh, They find the cup in Benjamin's sack, and how do they react? The cup, verse 12, is found in Benjamin's sack, and verse 13, they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey and returned to the city. They see the cup in Benjamin's sack, and they tear their clothes. Earlier on, when they threw Joseph in the pit and sold him into slavery, they ripped his robe, didn't they? And took it to Jacob to deceive him. Jacob then tore his clothes in grief at losing his son. Here, the brothers stand with the favourite son, tearing their clothes, being a sign of their grief. And they come to Joseph's house. They're all brought in. They don't leave Benjamin on their own. They all head back. Joseph accuses them and again offers himself. Uh, Judah, verse 16, acknowledges their guilt. Judah has become the kind of leader, the spokesperson for the brothers. And see how he admits his guilt in verse 16. God has found out the guilt of your servants. But what does he do? Uh, Joseph gives him a chance to, to get away. Verse 17, far be it from me that I should do so, says Joseph. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. As for you, go up in peace. He's giving them an out. It's fine. Wasn't you guys? It was just Benjamin. I'll just take Benjamin and you can all go. And Judah steps up again and says, no, no. It's the longest speech in Genesis. And essentially, Judah says, "We, we cannot do it. We cannot abandon our brother Benjamin. 
Uh, it's the uh, first time in the Bible that someone offers their life for another. Verse 21. Oh, sorry, not verse 21. We'll come back to that later. He, he offers his life for another. He says, no, take me instead of Benjamin. You see, they had the chance to finally finish off Rachel's sons, to finally kill off the favourites so that Leah's sons, the others, can have predominance again. But they don't. And Joseph sees, therefore, they are transformed men. He sees it in their admission of guilt. When Judah says in verse 16, we are guilty before God, Judah knows they're not guilty of stealing the cup, but he realises that God has found out their guilt. They have led lives full of sin and deceit. What do you like when someone accuses you of something? Have you ever been accused of something you didn't do? Have you heard that rumours about yourself that aren't true, things you've done wrongly, and you burn? That's so unfair. But the truth, of course, is that even if that thing that you hear about yourself isn't true, you're actually far worse. You're actually far worse. If people knew the truth about you, it would be more embarrassing. You'd be more ashamed. We're so quick to protest our innocence, but, uh, but Judah here knows, ultimately, he is guilty. There's no bargaining. How can we clear ourselves, he says. It's the first sign that they've been transformed. They admit their guilt. Uh, Judah demonstrates, too, his love for the father, a large part of his argument, if he picks it up as we read through, is we just can't go back without Benjamin because it will kill Jacob. It will kill Dad. The thought of losing his two favourite sons would finish him off. He'd go down to Sheol. He'd go down to the grave, that is. He'd die. How different is that from the brothers back in chapter 37 when our story began? Where they get rid of Joseph, dip the robe in blood and bring it back and just lie to their father. They don't care the grief it causes him. They don't care that he's mourning. Now, the brothers care and love the father. And they show, too, their love for the favourite son. Again, led by Judah. Verse 33 is that amazing offer. First time in the Bible, it's my life for yours as the offer. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord. And let the boy go back with his brothers. See what Judah's saying there? Let your servant, that's me, let me stay and I will be the slave. I will give my life as a ransom for his. That is a remarkable story, isn't it? A remarkable transformation in the brothers. We're going to come back to that offer of my life for yours and the way it points us forward. But, but just see how the brothers have been transformed. Now, their transformation is not the basis or our transformation when we are renewed Okay, when we're sanctified, when we're changed, that is not the basis of why we're accepted by God. But it is evidence that we are accepted by God. Anyone who is forgiven in the Bible is changed. Okay, the two graces go together. If you like, you, you could sort of tie them basically to the, to the Son and the Spirit. If you receive forgiveness in Jesus' name, you also are transformed by the Holy Spirit. And one of the encouragements to the story of Joseph is, that the Holy, there's no one too bad for the Holy Spirit to transform, no one beyond the reach of his grace. If he can transform these guys, Reuben, who slept with his father's wife, uh, if he can transform Judah, 
who slept with his daughter-in-law because he thought she was a prostitute, as if that makes it any better. Simeon and Levi, who butcher a whole town in Shechem, all of them who frankly sell one of their brothers into slavery and then lie to their dad, if the Holy Spirit can transform them, can destroy the power of sin in their life, then he can do it in yours and mine too. There is no one beyond the reach of the grace of the Spirit. And you can see the Spirit's work in their lives in ways that should parallel ours in many ways. I think of the words of 1 John we sometimes read in the service. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we claim we're sin-free, if we claim we're righteous, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. That is, we're not Christians. If we claim we're righteous, we're deceiving ourselves. At the beginning of the story, the brothers protested all their innocence before the father. Oh, it's a tragedy Joseph was lost. But here they admit, they confess their sin. That same letter of 1 John goes on. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he's not seen. That whole letter of 1 John ties love for one another very tightly to love to God. How do we see a transformed life in these brothers? Well, in part, they now love their brother, the favourite. And therefore, they love their father too. There is hope for anyone, no one beyond the reach of the Holy Spirit. But, but ultimately for us, it's not our transformed lives that we bring to God, is it? We don't turn up on that last day and we come before the throne. We don't say to God, well, look, I know I was terrible, but now I've changed because of the power of your spirit. That is not our hope. You can't be saved without that change. But it's not that change that is the grounds of our acceptance. And so we need to move from thinking about the work of the Spirit to the compassion of the Son. Let's just look at Joseph. And it is, it is beautiful, the descriptions of him. Come back with me to, verse, to chapter 43 and verse 30. They're brought before him. They don't know who he is at this stage. Verse 30, they're in front of him. Joseph hurried out for his compassion grew warm for his brother and he sought a place to weep and he entered this chamber and wept there. He is full of compassion. His heart is warmed with compassion. Over to chapter 45, verse 2. What do we read? Chapter 45, verse 2. He wept aloud. So the Egyptians heard it. Even the next door neighbours are hearing it. The household of Pharaoh heard it. Verse 14, he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept, and Benjamin wept upon his neck. Verse 15, he kissed all his brothers and wept with them. After that, his brothers talked with them. He's weeping all the time, all the way through the story, weeping, weeping, weeping because of his compassion. How does God's ruler react to guilty sinners who come before him and confess their guilt? Does he act with justice? It would have been quite just for Joseph to throw them all in jail, to pay them back rightly for what they'd done. That wouldn't be just a fit of anger. That wouldn't be jealousy. That wouldn't be selfishness or revenge. It would be justice. But God's ruler does not trust, does not treat his guilty brothers with justice. Thank God. Rather, his heart is full of compassion. There are various emotions attributed to Jesus when you read through the Gospels, but the most common one is compassion. 
slightly annoyingly in the ESV, the Bible we use. Sometimes it's translated, the same word is translated in different ways into English, so you don't always spot it. But compassion is the emotion most attributed to Christ in the Gospels. Our hope on that last day is grounded in the compassion of Christ. Sometimes we talk about Christ's mercy, which is more of an external word. When he shows us mercy, forgives us. But his compassion is, if you like, describes his, his heart, his attitude, a more internal word. How does Christ, God's true ruler, feel towards us, his brothers and sisters, fellow human beings, who have done far worse to him than the brothers did to Joseph? He feels compassion towards us. We read about it when he sees the the crowds, when he's feeding the 5,000, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed like sheep without a shepherd. When he sees the sick in Matthew 14, he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them and healed them. When he, he sees the father whose son is constantly fitting and seems to be possessed, the father asks him to him, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help. And Jesus does. When he sees that the widow whose son has died and the funeral is passing by, he has compassion on her and says, do not weep. And then just like Joseph, Jesus weeps. He weeps at Lazarus' grave. He weeps as he sees Mary and Martha weeping. He weeps as he rides into Jerusalem, knowing that Jerusalem is coming under judgment because of their sin. They're guilty. He's not weeping because they're innocent and about to be punished for something. They've not done anything wrong. They're guilty, but he still weeps. Your sin as a Christian moves Christ more to compassion than to anger. He is full of love. Uh, Joseph points us to Christ in that sense, as does Judah, of course. I guess many of you made the link already. Chapter 44, verse 33, when Judah says, uh, may I take the boy's place? He is pointing us forward to the great offer of Christ, who says, my life for their life. Judah, in fact, is the ancestor of Christ. You'd think from the way the story's gone so far that Joseph would be the tribe from which Jesus comes. But actually, it's Judah. Judah is the royal tribe. And here, Judah stands up and says, verse 33, I let me be the servant who replaces guilty Benjamin. Hundreds and hundreds of years later, Christ comes and says, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. The compassion of Christ drives him to the cross, drives him to give his life as a ransom, the price to set you free. And that's why, if you only remember one verse from this morning, it's a long, long passage, I know. Just look at chapter 45, verse 4. Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. Come near to me, please. That's what Christ is saying to you this morning. You are sinful, you are guilty, you have done terrible things. Even as a Christian, since you started following me, you've done terrible things. And yet he says, come near to me, please. And he weeps and embraces us. He has given his life as a ransom for many. If you're not a Christian, that means you don't have to sort yourself out to be able to come to God. 
It means you don't have to tidy yourself up and make sure that the part of your good deeds outweigh the part of your bad deeds or something. You can never do that anyway. All you need to do is come to Christ. Come to God in Christ's name and admit that you have no righteousness of your own, no good works to give him and ask for mercy. And what would he do? Not throw you in jail, not have you executed, not cast you into ultimately not the prisons of Egypt, but the, the prisons of hell, which wait anyone who doesn't turn to him. But instead, he will embrace you and say, come near to me and find safety and peace. The compassion of the son. And finally, as we close, the, the father's plan, the father's plan. We're just in chapter 45, do you see how many times Joseph emphasises that actually it was God at work behind the scenes? Hear that little phrase, God sent. So, so the brothers, in verse 5, he says, don't, don't be distressed or angry with yourself because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. Verse 7, God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. God sent me, God sent me, God sent me. It is the Father's plan to send this ruler to rescue. In Joseph's story, yes, they were wicked. They did, it was a terrible thing to sell their brother into slavery. Of course it was. Joseph is not saying, hey, what you did wasn't really wrong. Nor is he saying, because God planned it, it kind of wasn't your fault. No, it was still wicked what they did. But God was working through that wickedness in order to save them. There's a real irony, isn't there? In their wickedest deed was their salvation. What was the worst thing the brothers did? Beat up Joseph and sell him to slavery. And that, in God's wonderful way of working, was what would save them. Had he, Joseph not been sent into slavery, he would never have risen to be the ruler of Egypt and be able to provide all this grain to keep them from starving. Their wickedest deed was their salvation. Acts 2, Peter says this, Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And you crucified and killed him by the hands of lawless men. Jesus was always going to die. Sometimes people say they didn't believe in predestination. Christians, oh, I don't like predestination. Was it possible that Jesus wasn't going to die? No, of course not. All Christians know Jesus was bound to die. Of course he was going to be betrayed. Of course he was going to be crucified. The definite plan of God but it was lawless, wicked men who did it. And ultimately, that wickedest deed, when we crucified Christ as humanity, we turned our back on God's son, was the moment of our salvation. God in his sovereignty planned a worse sin to be the means of saving us as his son dies in our place. So is there mercy for you and me? Yes, there is. Is God for us or against us? He is for us in every way. The father planned to send his son, knowing that we would reject him, and yet using that very rejection to open the gates of glory to us. So, so when you think of that last day, the frailty of life, we sing a Psalm 90, we reflect on our own mortality, we look towards the day when ultimately we will die or Christ will return, every one of us in the room. What will it be like? Well, the compassion of Christ and his death for us uh, the plan of the Father to send his Son to rescue us. Uh, the work of the Spirit ultimately to bring us to life and, and make us trust in him. 
means that it'll be like, well, verse 14. He fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept, and Benjamin wept upon his neck. Well, that we might expect, that the true brother. Benjamin never betrayed him. But what about verse 15? Isn't it amazing? He kissed all his brothers and wept on them, and his brothers talked with him. What will it be like on the last day when you see Christ? Christ will fall in your neck, embrace you, weep with joy that you're gathered home. Yes, you're guilty. Uh, yes, you deserve exclusion. You deserve jail. But Christ opens those gates, falls on your neck, weeps and embraces his brothers. Now that is the good news of Joseph, the good news ultimately of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we praise you that you are God full of mercy, that Christ was a man uh, rich in compassion. We praise you that he, the true son of Judah, said that he would become a servant and give his life as a ransom for many. Uh, we pray that uh, you would open our eyes to see the love of Christ for us, that even in the depths of our sins, still he weeps with joy as he welcomes guilty brothers home. Oh, Father, we pray that this message of good news might go out to all corners of our city, our country, and of Christ's world, that many, uh, many might rejoice before him and know the love, the compassion of Christ. We ask in his name. Amen.